By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. Hey friends, and welcome back to Deep Dive. If you're new here, my name is Ali, and in each episode, I chat to authors, creators, entrepreneurs, and other inspiring people about how they got to where they are and the strategies and tools that can help us collectively on our shared journey of living healthier, happier, more productive lives. This episode is a little bit special because we've actually reached the end of season two of the podcast. It's been pretty inspiring. It's been great. It's been very exciting speaking to all the guests that we've had uh, across the last few weeks on the podcast. And so this video is going to be a roundup of six of my favorite lessons that I have learned through this season of the podcast. We're going to be talking about lessons in meaningful living, lessons in entrepreneurship, lessons in dating, lessons in side hustles, lessons in time management, and lessons in goal setting. Before we go there, just a few announcements. Firstly, the podcast is not going anywhere. We are returning for season three. And in the meantime, in between season two and season three starting, we're going to be having some bonus episodes and some Q and A's with me. So if you haven't subscribed, yet, this is a good chance to do so, whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening on any podcast platform. Secondly, we are doing an end of season survey. So in the show notes and in the video description, you'll find linked a survey. We'd love to get your thoughts on the podcast, how we can make it better, what you like about it, what you don't like about it, all that stuff, because we want to continue kind of showing up each week and doing cool interviews and conversations with people and trying to provide as much value as we can for you guys. And thirdly, we are actually in the process of building a community around my YouTube channel, around the stuff, around, you know, the people that watch and listen to my stuff who are on this shared journey of living healthier happier productive lives and so we've actually started a discord channel uh, a discord community discord server whatever the terminology is that the kids use these days it is called the friend zone and it's completely free to join uh, there'll be a link in the show notes or in the video description and you can join the friend zone we've got several thousand people there already it's super nice and wholesome we've got a channel for book discussions podcast discussions people sharing tips about how to code we've got like these co-working study sessions it's really cool very vibrant wholesome community completely free of charge to join so you can click the link in the video description or in the show notes to join that if you would like. So those were the announcements. Thank you very much for listening to this season of the podcast if you've been a listener for any length of time. And now let's roll some of my favorite lessons, favorite moments from this season of the podcast. Let's go for it. Towards the end of the book, you t you've, you've got a whole section called um, On a Meaningful Life. People have been trying to answer this question for like millennia. So what what's the kind of psychology, research, scientific take on what, how, how do we live a meaningful life? Sure. So a lot of the stuff from that section is taken from, I really like using um, acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT, um, which has a whole um, sort of part of that therapy is around uh, understanding your own values and what gives you meaning and purpose in life. Mm. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so so I've devoted a whole section to it because I think it's so, so important. And I also think it's important to not just do it once, but to keep doing sort of little values check-ins where you you just step back, get a bit of a bird's eye view on what's going on in your life at this mm. point, what matters most to you at this point, because it changes, right? You know, what was important to you at 21 might not be the same things that are important to you at 31. Mm. So your values change as you go along, but the way um, that we set it out in therapy is is that a value is like a path that you follow your whole life there is no end to it but you just you value that path so you want to stay close to it as much as you can okay. so a goal is something you once you've done it you you've done it it's mm. finished so your your goal might be to do a marathon but your value might be to stay fit and healthy uh, mm. and so the marathon becomes one of many possible goals along the way but your value is to to continue to be fit and healthy along the way. 
so that's the path yeah is fit and health you know fitness and health yeah um and then there can be lots of hur- lots of hurdles and lots of goals along the way um but at times life steers you away from those so mm. you know you might life happens and maybe uh, your job is very intense or you have children or whatever it is and it might steer you away from that path and so that's why i think it's so important to do these regular sort of values check-ins where you go oh i'm not feeling quite right and actually lots of people come to therapy with that sort of sense of i'm not really sure what the problem is i just mm. I'm feeling a bit lost or a bit, you know, life feels a bit meaningless at the moment. And often that's because people have lost touch with what's most important to them or life has steered them away from things that matter to them. Mm. And so just getting clarity on what does matter to me? What is the most important thing or things in my life at the moment? And what kind of person do I want to be in those areas of my life? Um, Which then allows you to set goals based on the life that you want to have or the person that you want yeah. to be. How, how do you go about figuring out your values? So there are lots of kind of little exercises you do you can do. Uh, sometimes you can literally just grab a piece of paper, um, separate it into little boxes, and you might have boxes for um, family life or um, lifelong learning mm. or um, health or creativity. So you can kind of fill those boxes with the different aspects of your life. And then in each box, kind of ask yourself, what kind of person do I want to be in this area of my life? So <clears throat> maybe it's family relationships. Mm. What kind of son do I want to be to my mum? What kind of, or my dad, and mm. you know, what, what kind of relationship do I want to have? Um, what do I want to represent to those people? Um, how would that show up in terms of behavior and action, you know, daily behavior? Um, and then you just kind of fill it with, with words or bullet points. And that gives you this, this picture of what life would be like if you were living in line with all of those values. Mm. And sometimes they pull on each other. So sometimes they conflict, you know, you might have this um, real idea of being a, um, you know, successful entrepreneur, but actually that sucks all of your time. And you also want to be a family guy and you, and you want to spend time with your kids or, you know, and so often there's this idea, you know, this sort of this balancing act where, okay, life has pulled me in one direction and I want to pull it back this way. So it's not about, setting goals and doing them perfectly. It's about always just tipping the balance. Mm. Um, you know, I haven't been working out for a while because I've been so focused on work. So I know I'm just gonna come back in this direction a little bit more and, and balance things out. Um, so it's really just getting clarity, but it's also not, not focusing on um, what happens to you. So it's not saying this is what I want mm. in my life because then things can happen. Yeah. And then you think, oh, failed, it hasn't worked out. It's really, not, it's really not about what happens to you. It's about how you want to be in the face of all the stuff that life throws at us. How do I want to respond when hard stuff happens? Mm. How do I want to respond when I'm in a good place? Um, and stuff like that. Yeah, as you were saying this, I was like, damn, these are some really good questions. So I should, <laughs> I should sit down and answer some of these. Um, so is that like, so, in in one of the early drafts of my book proposal, uh, the first chapter was going to be about like values and like meaning and, and stuff. And after doing a bunch of stuff and like reading an ACT textbook and things, I realized, okay, let me leave this aside for now. Maybe this is book three or four or five, ten years down the line, when or twenty or thirty years down the line when I have when I have more experience. Let's stick to the thing that I actually can feasibly talk about, which is like productivity and fun and and, and stuff. Um, and so I came across a bunch of these sort of value finding, value finding exercises. Uh, so I've kind of figured out what some of my values are, I think. But knowing that and then actually using it to change a decision that I would have made otherwise 
I haven't really done much of that. Like, how? Let's say someone does these journaling prompts and figures out, okay, I want to be the sort of son that does X, Y, Z. I want to be the sort of parent that does X, Y, Z. How, 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 do you, how do you translate that into physical, like actual action? Yeah, that's where, you know, the therapy stuff can be really helpful because it's a, a protected time in the week where you are going to reflect on those values and the things that you want to work on. So they're not necessarily a big problem, mm. but it's in a direction you want to steer to. And so it becomes this place where you're accountable to that and you mm. go and reflect on um, in hindsight. And that's where it all begins is looking back on things. So you think, okay, here's my map of all, you know, all these different values I have and the things that are important to me. How, how am I living in line with them? Mm. And you know, how have I been living in line with them in the last two weeks yeah. or have I, you know, and, and, when when you look back and you think, gosh, I really haven't, mm. what what would I need to do to steer back towards that value or to steer back towards that path? Um, and then it creates a mini goal for the week ahead, you know, and, and that's really how therapy works is, you you know, you go and you have this sense of accountability for yourself. That yeah. you, um, there are things you want to work on and you see how you've been getting on and you tweak things a bit and you set a new goal for the next week and then and then you reflect on that again next week. So I think translating kind of ideas and values into action mm. is really about reflection and planning. So you, mm. you learn in hindsight, you look back. Actually, yeah, if I'm really, really honest with myself, in the last couple of weeks, have I been living in line with that value? Yeah. Whatever it was, you know, enthusiasm, for example. And then, you know, if, if the answer is not really, you create a set of, you know, specific actions that I will do this week to to move closer to that and then the next week you reflect on well how was that yeah. did it move me closer does that feel enough do I need to do more do I need to step back and those sorts of things so it's just a always balancing and tweaking and um never ever doing it perfectly because that's really not the aim hmm. yeah I really like that model of like it's it's like you're steering towards this path that you've kind of decided that this is the thing I care about for now yeah um do values change much as we grow older? Oh, hugely, I think, yeah. Um, I mean, for me, I, I, you know, when I was, I don't know, 19 or 20, I never even envisioned myself as, as being a parent. I was really focused on my studies and learning and traveling and doing all those things. Um, but now that's without a doubt the most important thing in my life. So, you know, that's, it's only a decade. <laughs> it's only, you know, um, uh, you know, it's it's not a long time, but but when life throws things at you and life changes, then you you know what what matters to you changes as well, and that's okay. You know, you don't have to be the same person. Yeah. You learn and grow, and you would adapt to that. I think. Nice. So so coming back to the overall question of like m meaningful life, it sounds like figuring out your values is like a pretty reasonable first step on the path of like, hey, I know. I mean, we all basically know that we want to live a meaningful life, but I think very few of us actually keep that in mind <laughs> yeah. when, cause it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of a bit, a bit weird. Like it's a bit out there to think, huh, what's the meaning of life? Okay, well let me do some exercises and actually figure this out rather than just dismissing it as, oh, no one can ever figure that out kind of thing. Yeah. And um, I think we often look outwards as well, don't we? We look to, you know, we're, we're bombarded with media that tell us what life should be about mm. and what our purpose should be. And um, it, it's quite empowering when you give yourself permission to generate your own meaning so, well, actually, yeah. you know, it is up to you what matters to you. And yeah. then you can structure life around that. Life's still really, really hard and there are still responsibilities. But how you approach those responsibilities 
it's really your choice. Um, and, and that can be quite sort of refreshing, I think, to think you don't have yeah. to be gaining everybody's approval. You have to be looking at, well, what would life be like if I approved of myself? If I, if I, if I approved of myself? Oh, as in like, yeah. so I, if I were kind of following the path that so, I've decided is meaningful. Uh, yeah, so if I'm okay. looking for my own approval, what, yeah. what would I be doing? You know, it's a sort of, yes, we can get approval from other people, yeah. but also what would make me really pleased with myself because these are my values rather than them necessarily being other people's. Can you really dissociate that? Like, you know, let's say I value, I'm, I'm, I'm considering applying to Harvard for like an MBA. And I keep on like second guessing this because I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, I value prestige, I value status, I value these badges of like stuff. Is that really like me or is that kind of what society plus or minus my family have kind of instilled into me that makes me feel as if it's coming from within, if that makes sense? What's, what's the gut feeling? What's, do you feel that it's come from outside? No, I don't feel like it's come from outside. But I also didn't come out of the womb thinking I want to I want to get a degree from Cambridge Harvard. <laughs> like, <laughs> so there is some level of like, you know, it wasn't a genetic decision. There is some level of like socialization that goes into this sort of stuff. Yeah. And I guess I wonder to what extent the fact that I know that probably a large chunk of my identity is socialized in some to some degree. Does that still make me me or does it make me a product of my the society I've been brought up in? And then how do I like find my true meaning if, well, it's society that's told me that a Harvard and Cambridge degree is like a good thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Because we're all a product of of our upbringings and our cultures and all those kind of things, aren't we? So, you know, I don't think it's about sort of finding this one truth. I think it's about creating the meaning and holding on to things that, you know, what a wonderful thing that would be to do if that was what you would enjoy and find yeah, inspiring yeah. and exactly yeah. so you know i think you can that's the beauty of it is um when when you're in a position that you can choose those things mm. then you can decide um yes it might be that i've i've learned you know some of these sort of um ideas around prestige of universities and stuff mm. but actually i would really enjoy that and it would give me a lot of meaning and mm. purpose it doesn't matter if if it came from someone else yeah. if you agree with it you know Ooh. whereas if you yeah, feel good. <laughs> pressured and it's not something you want to yeah. do but you feel like you're doing it because you know someone will disapprove of you if you don't yeah. and that's slightly different isn't it yeah but if it's something you love and yeah. you would get good memories from and i think i think it's kind of like the like Realistically, the reason I go to the gym is not for myself; it's to look more attractive. <laughs> but I also agree that it's a good thing to do, and therefore, who, who cares what the, what the prime motivation is? It's it's a good thing to do. Exactly, you can kind of use all the different aspects of pressure yeah. and to your own advantage. A lot of thoughts that that sparked through through that. Have have you, have you come across uh, the E Myth? Oh yeah, oh big. Uh, that was <laughs> that was a super early read for me. So I to go back to the sort of starting a business. Mm. I was a classic. Uh, I was a coffee obsessive. I was like, well, I understand coffee. I'm good at making coffee. I should open a coffee business. And Mm. uh, very quickly it was like, oh, then there's the business of business. And Mm. uh, how rapidly can I get good at the business of business to build sort of the machine underlying that? And and I didn't have time to do anything other than read uh, and and read I did. And so, yeah, uh, Michael Gerber's book, I think was uh, super, super informative, very relevant to me and further encouragement to to work on the business or in it. Uh, which becomes slightly glib when you say it, but it's so, so important. Yeah. I can't, I can't, you know what I mean? I can't emphasize enough the the need to get out from the the the, the daily of the manufacturing of a business, whatever yeah. it is that you make and sell and do, into a, a higher level 
think uh, or sort of thought process to understand the model, the mechanics of the, it's a machine, right? Yeah. You're tweaking cogs and you're, you're kind of making it work just nice. That's hard. And you need to get good at that. And that has nothing to do with coffee. Yeah. That has nothing to do with coffee and everything to do with understanding everything from people through to sort of marketing, sales, economics, finances, reading a balance sheet, understanding the impacts of decisions you make on your balance sheet, on your future, on your cash flows, all of that sort of stuff. Mm. I really enjoyed it, which is fortunate. Uh, lots of people are immediately turned off and go to the safe space of the thing that they know and care about. And and that's, you know, not healthy for the business long term. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an insight that so many people have only only once they have started a business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you realize, oh, actually, I don't know, like, I guess, I guess YouTube is a, a, a different example because you do actually make money from it. But like, you know, just being good at making coffee does not does not make me a good owner of a or or manager or operator of a of a coffee business not at um all. And, and so I, I first read the e-myth i think in like 2019 or something and I'd, I'd had a business at that point that had been going for five years and i was like my god i wish i'd read this book five years ago because all of the mistakes under the sun oh yeah and and the first time i came across that phrase that you know you should be working on the business not in it i was just like my mind was completely blown and now it's just so it, it feels so standard to me that i almost can't remember a time where i didn't know that that was a thing right and even now when kind of coaching YouTubers and stuff, this is the thing I try and encourage more creators to think a little bit more businessy. Because I think creators are very easy at thinking like, oh, it's about the craft. It's about the video I want to make. Sure. If it's about how it makes me feel, which is fine. But I also, I think if you, have, if you want to turn it into a business, there is a level of let's actually approach this from a, a slightly more businessy angle. I got very interested in the idea of um, sustainable businesses. You know, because I, how do you build a business that, that uh, exists outside of the people that work within it mm. um and and this in coffee is a particular challenge because uh, go back to this and I'll, I'll promise to make sense of it you do loads of barista training as a, as a coffee roaster and a supplier you train loads of people and what you end up feeling is that you're just pouring water into a bucket with a hole in it because you train a bunch of people they leave because they're just there for a little bit uh, and the business itself doesn't retain the knowledge and, and you look at businesses that are hundreds of years old how did they how do they exceed the will or the ideas of one person and become this thing where they are almost a living entity themselves? And you get into the boring answers of like systems and structure and that yeah. you, you build a business that is able to retain knowledge independent of the people that work within it. Mm. And that isn't a bad thing. That doesn't strip people of their value or utility. That makes their job easier, more enjoyable because uh, they can still access that information and knowledge. But when they leave, half your business doesn't walk out the door. Yeah that for me became a very uh, interesting sort of thing to think about of like, how do you treat it like uh, a, a thing that can learn independently, right? Can you teach a business? And we got really interested in this with a bunch of customers of like, okay, we need to stop just training your baristas. We'll keep doing that, but we need to work with you in a way of collecting and systemizing the knowledge that we are delivering so that it's yours, regardless of who's executing it. And that sounds dehumanizing, but it, but it, I don't think it is. I think it's, it's about creating actually a much healthier environment uh, for, to work in where you don't feel like you, you can't leave because you'd break the business. That's a really, and lots of people have felt that way of like, I can't leave when I want to, I want to do something else, but I feel stuck here because I know too much of this company rests on me. And that's an awful thing to do to someone. It's not good retention. That's a bad, it's a bad thing. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I think not enough people talk about that, the idea of like, you know, be it a founder or key people or, you know, the business itself has to retain information, knowledge, it has to have a purpose bound sort of into it to be sustainable long term. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think this is again one of the one of those things that you only really start to appreciate once you have a business. <laughs> and before, uh, when I was reading about businesses, system structure, processes, HR, values, vision. What the hell is all that bullshit? And then as soon as you start, like, oh, okay, now now I see what's what's happening. Now I see why I I like. It's you know with, with with my first business, it's bad that I'm I am the one staying up until twelve midnight, making sure that our book deliveries for our course, which is happening in Manchester tomorrow, have actually arrived because I'm the only one who knows how to deal with the supplier. That's probably bad. Probably bad. <laughs> and this is sort of figuring out all these things of like, oh my god, <laughs> like what started off as me enjoying teaching courses for medical applicants, now turning into it, turning it into a business is actually a lot of the quote boring stuff, which then at least for me, became the fun stuff when I realized how much there was to learn and how much of a kind of uh, what the learning curve was like and that every new book I was reading, I was just, my mind was blown. Like, oh my God, yeah. businesses have been solving these problems problems for decades, if not hundreds of years. There's, there is a system behind this and I can learn the system. Um, yeah. I think that's the, that's the, off the, you know, I think for me though, I read loads and loads and loads of books, but there was still the kind of lag of the conversion of information to knowledge through the, the application of it. You know what I mean? Like it took me doing it, messing it up, doing it again, messing it up to kind of get to the point where you're like, okay, now I truly understand the ideas here and, and how they work. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. A, it's like it's fun. all, it's all well and good to read a book about hiring, but until you've done it and made mistakes with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know, like, uh, you know, I come from, I suppose, a family of entrepreneurs. So I, I was fortunate in that I had in my family people to be like, hiring is going to be the hardest bit. Uh, you know, all the advice they gave me, I was like a, a little bit blase about it at the time. They're like, they were like, it's going to be really hard. Starting business is really hard. And you're like, really hard. Got it. Great. And then you like a year in, you're like, this is really hard. Why didn't you tell me? And they're like, what's wrong with you? Uh, and they're like, hiring is going to be the hardest bit. And, and it's the, it stays the hardest bit mm. forever. And you're like, nah. Nah, okay. how could it be? And the first, we had some advice. really yeah. great first few people. Yeah. And you're like, this is fine. This is easy. And you're like, no, no, no. No, you learn a bunch of awful lessons. And, and, and um, you know, it still remains the hardest part. And, and especially if you want to, you know, I, I think that there are businesses out there that still want to find a human, extract the value, on you go. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? That's not, that's for us, not that interesting. We're interested in development, enjoying where you work, satisfaction, all of that kind of stuff. You know, it's the, the, the slightly trite line of like, we want to be the place where you do your best work. Mm. But I think that's very true for what we certainly aspire to. But that obviously, it doesn't make things harder. It just changes the challenge yeah. and, and changes the sort of focus. The great lesson from my point of view is that we didn't start with enough um, because I worked enough too many capital. hours. Yeah. yeah. So I fell for the, the classic what's the can i swear here yeah please. oh great um so the hero bullshit of entrepreneurship of like i must grind myself down i'm a fucking hero working super hard i'm doing it right and it's such bullshit and it's such a toxic aspect of all work and i hate it but i definitely worked 110 hour weeks for like months mm. ground myself down to the point of deep misery and there is no quicker way to hate a thing you love that, than to work like to work on it like that Right, like I really love coffee. I definitely got to the point where I was like, I should quit coffee. I should just, I, I, I hate this. I hate this. I hate my life. I hate working in this. I should just do something else, because I worked in a stupid way and I burnt myself out physically and emotionally. Because people do that. Because the world says, good for you. Get the grind on. You know what I mean? What? It's your thing. It's yours. Pour yourself into it. And you're like, no, don't, don't do that. That's really bad. What you should do is start with enough capital that you can hire people to work with you, pay them properly, uh, and then work in a healthy manner. Do you know what I mean? Like, just have work and home. Uh, be separate. That's helpful. Turn off. 
don't work at weekends or don't work some days a week. It's very satisfying early doors to, to pour yourself into a business. It is rewarding. It's enjoyable. But it, you're just burning through yourself so fast. And so I regret not starting with probably twice as much money, hiring more people out of the gate, and going home at five o'clock. Do you know what I mean? Like, just be done. Just turn it off. Turn off the... Go home. Enjoy life. You can build this thing. You don't have to sacrifice yourself for this. The downside is you need more money to start with. So that's, that's the trade-off. We didn't have that money. We didn't know we needed it. We had enough to buy the physical things, not enough to build the systems, hire the people. And so we just worked ourselves to the bone and it was miserable and I regret it and it was a mistake. Oh, okay. On that point. Yeah. So I feel like sort of uh, at least in the online online discourse around starting businesses, circa 2013 to 2019 was the era of the hustle culture movement sure. saying that, look, you're starting from nothing. Your 20s are for hustling. You've got to grind yourself to the ground, work on weekends, work on evenings to make that, to start that thing. Since pandemic, I think, has accelerated this, there's a lot more like that kind of approach of actually sustainability is important, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what a lot of the kind of pro hustle people say is that, look, when when you don't have that startup capital, like, and you're working your crappy job and you need to start the business, there is not much you can do other than kind of work between, I don't know, 7 p.m. and 2 a.m. and also work on weekends and all that kind of stuff. And I guess you're just hoping it's just a, a season of time so that you can build enough money, build a business off the ground, because it will take blood. Theor the theoretically, it takes blood, sweat and tears to get a business off the ground from from moment one. Yeah. Um, and a lot of entrepreneurs that I've spoken to who have done that kind of were grinding themselves to the ground say that, yeah, it wasn't ideal. It wasn't really a happy time. But without that period of crunch, which for several years, potentially, the business wouldn't have got, gotten off the ground. So I guess my question to you is, do you think that you would have been able to do it in a more nicer, sustainable way? Or do you think it was necessary to put in the blood to, to get, this, get this off the ground? I think, I think that the tricky bit is that if I had had the understanding that I have now... Hmm and a little bit more capital, then yes, we could have built the same business far more enjoyably. I don't think it would have been a bigger business necessarily, mm. but it, it would have been a more enjoyable process to, to do that. We're going to take a very quick break to introduce our sponsor for this episode, who is Brilliant. I've been using Brilliant for the last few years, and they're a fantastic interactive platform with online courses in maths, science, and computer science. My personal favorites are the computer science courses. I think they're absolutely fantastic. And when I was initially applying to med school, I was actually torn between applying to medicine and applying to computer science. And I ended up going with medicine in the end, which I really don't regret. But there's a big part of me that really wanted to continue learning the stuff around computer science continuing to understand how coding works. And the courses on Brilliant have given me that foundation in computer science, which I didn't have before. The courses are really fun, engaging, and interactive. And the way they teach you stuff is based on very first principles thinking. Like they'll teach you a concept and then they'll take you through interactive exercises to actually help solidify your understanding of that concept. And it's pretty cool because they're always updating the library with new courses. For example, there's one they've just released called Everyday Maths, which is kind of like a visual exploration of the maths that we use in everyday life. Like for example, fractions and percentages and putting them in a context that makes it very understandable. And so certainly very different to the kind of boring way that I was taught maths when I was in school. The courses and lessons are particularly good if you have a busy life with lots of stuff going on because they really teach you the stuff in bite-sized chunks. So you can always return to a course at a later date if you don't have time to do it in one sitting. If any of that sounds up your street, then do head over to brilliant.org forward slash deep dive and the first 200 people to hit that link, which is also going to be in the video description and in the show notes, will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. So thank you so much to Brilliant for sponsoring this episode. So my whole thing is date like a scientist. So date like a scientist is have some hypotheses, test them, 
bring the data back to me and we will try to understand what that means. And so maybe at the end of our first session, we said, we think you're a maximizer. We think that you have unrealistic expectations of partners. And we think that the next time that you go in a second date and you don't want to go in a third, we're going to push you to go in the third because it's in that third that you will deepen the relationship and get to know this person versus rejecting them for something silly. If your issue was that you were a hesitator and you weren't putting yourself out there, your next step would be getting a dating app and trying to go on more dates. And so what's the point of a dating app profile? The point is to create a great first impression. And so your dating app profile is almost like you walking into a bar and giving off a particular vibe. So if you're wearing a Game of Thrones t-shirt, people are going to engage with you on that. If you're wearing a tutu or a basketball jersey, people are going to engage with you in different ways. And so how do you want people to see you and then respond to you? And so I can get into the weeds, but Really, your dating app profile should tell a story. It should have variety. It should say, this is me when I'm with my family and friends, and this is what dating me would look like. This is a full body shot of me, so you can see what I look like in the world. Here's a clear picture of my face without filters or sunglasses, so you know what I look like. Here's me doing an activity that I love, and I want you to ask me questions about it. So you're really painting a picture. You want to have variety. You want to have clear photos that show us who you are. We don't want to be playing where's Wally, and wondering which one you are in a different picture. And really, you're putting yourself out there so that somebody can see who you are, know what you look like, and most importantly, you're creating a hook that they can grab onto and then engage you in a conversation. Okay, so dating apps. Um, One of my core beliefs is that everyone who is single that I know should be on dating apps, and only about half of them are. And there's a few common objections that I get when I try and talk people into making accounts on dating apps. Um, Can I just throw a few of them them at you? And I would love to hear. Absolutely. Okay. Let's do Um, it. Dating apps are just for hookups. What's going on there? (laughs) I work at Hinge. Hinge is really about getting people off of the app and onto relationships. I know that's sort of a tagline, but in the two years that I've been there, I've really found that to be true. We're obsessed with helping people go out on great dates. There are different dating apps that serve different purposes, but if you're someone who's really looking for a relationship, A, so are a lot of people on certain apps like Hinge, and B, you should feel free to be upfront from the beginning about what you're looking for. So we just ran this fascinating experiment at Hinge where we showed 12,000 different users four profiles. Some of the profiles said they were looking for something generic, you know, kind, compassionate, adventurous. Some of the profiles said, I am looking for a long-term relationship. What we found is that if the person in the experiment was also looking for a long-term relationship, they were much more likely 17% more likely to send the person who is looking for a relationship a message because they were like, great, you've taken the guesswork out of this. I want something. You want something. I'll message you. If the person looking at the profile did not want a relationship, they were 10% less likely to send that person a message. And that actually saves you time on both ends. You get more messages from the kind of people you want to hear from and fewer messages from the kind of person you don't. And so a lot of this is just being bold, being courageous, being upfront from the beginning, whether it's on your profile or the first and second date, about what you in particular want Mm. to get out of this experience. Nice. Love it. So objection number two is dating apps focus too much on the superficials. 
And as a sub point to that, it's mostly guys that I speak to about this. Uh, guys are systematically, um, uh, shall we say, shafted <laughs> in the dating market because, um, you know, there are so many more guys on this app than there are girls. And I've tried it a couple of times and I never get any matches. And then I look at one of my female friends and they're getting freaking 100 matches a day. Like, ugh, as a guy, dating apps are not for me. <laughs> There are issues where dating apps can reduce you to this two-dimensional image that people are evaluating, and without a lot of context, they might immediately go for looks. One thing that Hinge just released is these voice prompts, and this is a chance for people to be silly. They could do an impression of their favorite cartoon character. They could play you a silly song that they've been writing. They could you know, do a celebrity impression, whatever that is. And it's a chance to bring more authenticity to the profile. And so I'd say in general, I think the future of what we're going to be seeing with dating apps is wanting more information, whether it's more video, more voice, more interactivity. So it's not just like, hey, here's a piece of paper with bio data on it that your mom showed you. And you have to say yes or no, I want to go on a date with this person. But really, it will feel more like, oh, I've seen you on social media. I get a sense for how you move through the world. I get a sense for what you look like, what your voice sounds like. I have an immediate response to who you are. And so I would say for those people, what can they do on their end to bring their more full self to the profile? And then also in their own behavior on the app, how can they try to give more people a chance? Because if we focus too much on height, or age, we're actually filtering out a lot of people who could make great potential partners. Okay, so we've got the profile where we've, we've matched with a few people. We've got Hinge Premium because why not? <laughs> um, it's such a time saver. Um, this is another thing. Uh, this is another hill that I die on with, with a bunch of my friends. They're like, why would you not? Like, you're making decent money. You work at McKinsey. Why, why would you not I pay agree. 17 quid every six months? I totally for, agree. It just begs. But anyway. I think about yeah. that all the time in terms of like, how much would you pay to find the love of your life? And for a lot of people, you know, depending on their pay scale, it's a lot of money. So why aren't you putting money behind that? Why aren't you, you know, investing in some good date outfits, whether it's paying mm. for a dating app, or even I have a friend who runs an incentive program where if you, it's actually through her dad, if you yeah. set her up on five dates, either five dates with one person or five dates with different people, some combination, he will send you this gift basket from nuts.com, which I just think is so funny and <laughs> random. But why it works is psychologically, it makes you feel like, okay, this person's really serious about dating. She's willing to go out with whoever you set her up with, and there's an incentive. And so it makes me put in the extra effort to set her up. And so if anyone's listening and feels motivated, put your money where your mouth is and offer an incentive to your friends to set you up. It might just make the difference between them saying yes and them actually doing it. Mm. Yeah. So on on that note, there was a, a blogger that I that I follow. Um, his name is Tynan. Uh, he was he he was actually featured in uh, the game back in the day. Uh, the book. Oh wow. Um, he okay. was he was he was one of the people in the house. But he he ended up uh, kind of growing it, yeah. out of that, becoming like a sort of <laughs> personal development blogger type guy and building Thank businesses goodness. and things. And I, I I interviewed him on this on one of these like streams uh, about two years ago. Uh, he had a thing that when he turned thirty, he posted to his mailing list saying, "Look, I'm serious about getting to know someone." If you introduce me to the person I end up in a long-term relationship, I will, I will a long-term relationship with, I will help you tick off any item on your bucket list. Oh, and he got that. a bunch of like inbound that way. And when I, when, when I heard about that, that really resonated with me because it really was a case of put your money where your mouth is and, and take this seriously. But then I mentioned it to some people and they were like, that's a bit weird. It's, dating shouldn't be so systematic and stuff like, 
what what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> um, I don't know if yeah. you get if you get that like the whole like scientific approach to dating and stuff. Do you get that pushback that like oh it's supposed to be more natural than that? First of all, I have chills from that story because it's so clever. Like, I love that it was at the milestone of turning 30. I love those to his email list. I also think tick something off your bucket list is just such an amazing prompt and probably better than money because it like helps you really sit and say like, what's my bucket list and what's mm. holding me back? And maybe even if you don't win that contest or whatever, you still might make progress on it. But for the general question, yes, people ask me all the time, why are you trying to apply research to something that's organic and how can you bottle up love? So my response to them, it's actually the first paragraph of my book is that, yes, love is natural and we're born knowing how to love, but dating isn't. Dating in the modern sense was invented at the end of um, around 1890. So this is a relatively new concept in terms of the span of human history. And then dating on apps is around a decade old with um, swiping and all of that being extremely new. And so part of it is just having humility around the fact that a lot of us are just making this up as we go along. This is not something that we know how to do. Second of all, in history, people would help you, right? There was the matchmaker, or maybe your father would have you marry the person next door so that your parcels of land connected, or he would trade your hand in marriage for 10 camels. There was all these other people involved. It's actually a really new concept that you, on your own, define all of these characteristics of your life, including who you marry. And so people need help. Second of all, there is academic research on this. We talked about this. There's research on attraction, research on do opposites attract, research on what makes for a long-term compatible relationship. Why wouldn't you look at that? If you were going to make a nutrition plan or a financial plan, you would look at the research. Why is love something that has to defy logic and defy science? And so I'd say, this is something that you care about and you want to find someone great and not get divorced. Why wouldn't you invest in knowing the information out there? It can only empower you and you can take the parts of it that are useful and you can ignore the other parts. One of the things that you talk about is the sort of ref actively reflecting on a date when you get back from it. Um, and I wanted to ask, like, to what extent, like, what are the sorts of questions that we should be asking when we get back from dates? And to what extent is like a sort of checklist approach to this a good idea? Because we talk about things like growth mindset and emotional maturity and ability to communicate. Is that the sort of thing, like, similar to how, like, if you're hiring someone for a job, you want to have, like, a scorecard and you want to be able to evaluate each candidate against the scorecard, is this the sort of person who would be able to do X? To what extent is that, like, a decent approach when it comes to dating and reflecting on dates afterwards? In general, I think that having a checklist is not helpful because often what's on that checklist is the wrong stuff. It's height, income, perceived success, do we have the same hobbies? I think a lot of times that checklist is based on what we think matters in long-term relationships, which the research shows us doesn't matter in long-term relationships. So as a concept, I would say, throw out your checklist, be willing to date someone who's not your type. It is very possible that the person you end up with, the person who makes it you happiest long-term is not the person you thought you would be with. Mm. That being said, in my book, I offer this exercise called the post-date eight. The post-date eight is based on research on gratitude journals. So there's amazing research from many people, including Sean Acor of Harvard, that says if at the end of the day you have to write down three things that you're grateful for, 
your brain will actually be looking for them throughout the day. So if you're running to make the bus and you make it, maybe five minutes later, you forget about it. But if you know that at that night, you have to write it down, then you're going to notice it more. So what we do at the end impacts what we look for throughout. So the post-date eight is the same idea. I've taken what I believe and what the research shows matters for evaluating a date. I've turned it into these list of eight questions. Things like, how did I feel in my body around this person? Do I feel curious about this person? What side of me did this person bring out? And then throughout the date, you aren't looking at their height and their job. You're paying attention to those things. And at the end of the date, you ask yourself the post-date eight to decide, do I want to see this person again. And so it is a version of a checklist, but it's a checklist designed to help you focus on what matters, not what doesn't. Nice. And uh, I wonder if you can give some examples of like, what what are some of the questions in the post-date eight? Sure. So from all the research that I've done and even the coaching I've done since my book has come out, this one of what side of me did this person bring out is huge because it helps you understand great on paper, brings out a bad side of me. I don't want to see them again. That's a really helpful insight. Another one is this idea of do they energize me or de-energize me? So there's an activity called a penthouse and a basement person. You think in your life, not even in a romantic setting, who is my penthouse person? Who, when I'm with them, do they bring my energy up? Do I feel creative? Do I feel inspired? So for you, who's your penthouse person? Who's my penthouse person? Uh, I can think of a few university friends. I think my brother is one of my penthouse people, which is why we kind of decided to start a podcast together. Um, My current housemate is a penthouse person, definitely. (laughs) I love that. Yes. So you have this penthouse person. That's another helpful benchmark. Mm. And you have a basement person, somebody who makes you feel depressed, down, de-energized. And so just asking this question, did I feel more energized or less energized after the date, helps you understand where that person falls and helps you get closer to finding a penthouse person. Because of course, the person you end up with in a romantic relationship, you want them to bring out that inspired, capable, creative part of you. Mm. And so it's really helping you understand what stuff matters, what stuff to pay attention to, and it ignores things like, did I think they have an impressive job? And do we have enough hobbies in common? Stuff that people think matters, but really doesn't. I was trying to work out what age you started various companies. And it was like, surprisingly later in life than people would initially think. Yep. People think founders like, you know, 17 to 19 year olds, Mark Zuckerberg, the Stripe guys. Yeah. Um, but you were like 30 th- something when you started? I would have been 36, 37. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, yeah. Most of these sort of podcasts can focus around the, the sort of very younger guys. Yeah. And yeah, you think about the Zuckerberg as well, incredibly young. Yeah. Or I think you've done Ben Francis recently, yeah. incredibly young. So I think that it, it's, um, yeah, I think it's interesting that most people probably think when they get 36, 37, they're sort of stuck in what they're doing. Yeah. They can't retrain, they can't relearn. But yeah, I did. I just sort of uh, had a had a need, had a personal reason why I needed to start working from home mm. and uh, had to suss that out. And I did a lot of the stuff you sort of do is listen to a lot of podcasts, <laughs> tons of podcasts, read a lot online and try and work out and sort of bodge your way through to start off with. So it took me about a year yep. before I got the confidence to jack my job in, but worked evenings and weekends. Yeah, it must be 36, 37. Yeah. So when you, so um, I, I speak to a lot of people in there, like, so sometimes even late teens, but like early to mid twenties who, who say, oh, I don't know what I want to do. I haven't figured it out. Yep. It seems like all these other people are sort of like going ahead of me. Yep. Um, what was your kind of experiences during school and sort of like late teens, early twenties? Um, and how did, how did we go from that to, and then, <laughs> then to starting a business like age okay. 36? So I left school at 16, um, pretty poor GCSEs. Um, what did I get? 
three C's maybe, D's, E's. Yeah. got two E's for English. I do, I do remember that. <laughs> I can't spell. I'm not really going to read it either, really. It's got two E's for English. Left at 16. Worked at a shop for a year. Then worked digging holes in the road for two years as manual labour. Um, then I think my girlfriend at the time was about 90. She goes, what are you doing? Why are you digging holes in the road? You're too smart to do that. So I wasn't academically smart, but I was sort of quite smart at certain stuff. So I went back to college two years uh, and I thought I'd come out of there and get a job. Came out of college with two, uh, I think it was a BTEC I had. Couldn't get a job off the back of that. So I had nothing else to do really apart from went to uni. I thought, well, now I'm committed. I've given up work. I might as well keep going. Mm-hmm. So then I got a, uh, a placement at Bournemouth University, did a degree in marketing, came out of that. thought I'd get a job straight away, no problem. Didn't. I had to go and work. In a, I remember I worked night shifts in a petrol station for six months. Okay. And um, and then luckily, I think it was my stepmom, she worked with somebody who's husband worked somewhere and luckily I got a job in marketing finally after all that so I'd had a degree in marketing I had a 2-1 but couldn't get a job luckily I got one uh worked in a marketing team from about I think that must be 1999 something like that worked in marketing for mostly retailers so that was when you were like 25 fish yeah would yeah maybe a little bit older 25 26 something yeah. like that okay. and um and then then I started uh internet sort of came along yeah so this was still quite early because I think when I was at uni, I think I finished uni in 96 and the internet right, was really not really about, you know, I think I think at university you could go and use some of the computers there and you could access the internet, but nobody really had a home computer of mm. internet in 96. And, um, and then when I first got my job, I was just doing normal sort of marketing as a marketing assistant and then the internet came along. So somebody said, can you have a look at this internet thing? Should we have an internet business? I was working for MFI, which was a furniture retailer at the time. And I sort of said to them, yeah, it looks like you should. Um, B&Q, which was a bigger retailer at the time, had a what they called a brochureware site. Had, you couldn't buy, no e-commerce. I said, well, we could we could beat them. We could overtake them if you give me some money. So I sort of persuaded the the team or the board to give us, I think, £67,000 to start the first website. Got that built by an agency, got that going. And then, of course, I was almost a, you know, within one year, I was almost a grey beard in terms of internet experience because nobody had it. So then I moved on, worked for some other retailers. And then fast forward to... Um, yeah, 2000 and, what we, 2008, I think it was. Um, I needed to work from home because of a personal reason. And um, I thought, shit, what am I going to do? Because I lived in Aylesbury, which was out in, sort of out in the countryside. I was working in London and going an hour and a half each way. So it was three hours of driving yeah. a day. So I wanted to work from home. No marketing jobs of any sort of merit in, in Aylesbury area. So I needed to create my own business. Yeah. And uh, so I started looking around and luckily at the time we were using some affiliates and affiliates are people basically who sit at home and create websites and make money from sitting in their PJs, I suppose, mm. at home. And I yeah. thought, this is something I can do, maybe. These guys, I met, I met them. I went to an affiliate event yeah. and uh, these guys, I thought, oh, they're making, I knew how much some of them, some of them yeah. were making, like 10, 20,000 pounds a month. I think, holy shit, there's loads of money. And... Um, and I met them, I thought they were going to be, I don't know, I'm not saying they thought it was going to be geniuses. But when I met them, I thought, they're, they're bright, but they're not like rocket scientists. I mm. thought, if they can do it, why can't I do it? So that was basically me then thought, right, I'm going to learn how to do this by myself, by listening to podcasts, yeah. by practicing, starting websites, learning, learning, learning. Yeah. So I used to get home from work at, say, six o'clock on a work day, um, have my uh, meal with my, my wife at a time. And then go on the computer at seven o'clock. I basically had my computer desk set up in a lounge so I could sit in the lounge 
watch TV. I had a little mirror set up. I could <laughs> to watch the TV <laughs> while I was uh, working yeah. and worked till, say, 11 o'clock. Do this at the weekends as well. Did that nearly sort of full-time for a year yep. until I got to the stage where I started making about £1,000, maybe £1,500, £2,000 a month yep. and started thinking, I know how to do this. If I had more time, I could double the amount of work. I would double the amount of money I could earn. And so I remember saying to my wife at the time, I said, right, I'm going to have a crack at this. I'm going to jack my job in. Yep. I'm going to give myself six months. If I can't get the same amount of money I get for my salary – Within six months, I'll go back and get that job again or get a similar type of job. Mm. And I think I, at that time, I had a good enough experience that I felt confident I could go back and get a job. So it felt like pretty low risk. And um, I thought, as long as I could earn the same salary and I'm working from home, it's a win-win. I haven't got I'm three hours a day. I'm not yeah. traveling. So that was the goal. Within three months, I was earning more than my salary. And then it just kept on going after that. Yeah, I think that's uh, when I think when 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 people quit a job, um, I feel like they often have the, the, this idea that, oh, you know, I'm, I'm working a 30K job, therefore quitting the job is a 30K risk. Yep. But it's actually not because like next week you could, you could probably get a 28K job if you really wanted to. Yep. And so really it's not a 30K risk, it's a 2K risk between the job that you currently have and the job that you could pretty easily get if you needed to. Yep. And even if, if you take a little bit of a pay cut, maybe you can't get a 35K job immediately, but at least a 25, 28K job is, is, is very reasonable in that context. Um, and I don't know anyone who's kind of done, done that and regretted the decision. Because you're sort of like going all in on yourself yeah. and giving yourself that. Be like, yeah, I'm, I've, I've, I've got to make this work. And if I don't, then it's not the end. Of, it's not the end of the world. I'll just yeah. get another job. If you talk about it and sort of practice at it forever, you're never going to do it. At some yeah. point, you do have to make that hard decision to do it. Yeah. But I would never. I've never would have done it before. I'd been yeah practicing and learning for a year. Mm. So evenings and weekends was vitally important. I think if you do that and really do it and start earning money, yeah. you build confidence. The more you do something, the more confidence you get. So I was pretty confident at the end of that year. I said, if I double the amount of time I can work on this or triple the amount of times, so I probably could have tripled the amount of time. I know I will do this. Yeah. So I was pretty confident, but yeah, I'd put enough money to one side to pay the mortgage, pay all the bills for six months, which is not a lot. If you just strip everything out of your life, apart yeah. from the mortgage and the food bills, you don't need that much. So it wasn't a ton of cash, but I put enough money in the bank that had that, saved that up over that previous year for the money I had earned from it. Mm. Put that to one side, that was enough. Um, but yeah, it was three months and I was earning more. Yeah, so one th one thing I, I, f I often hear from people is this idea of, you know, I, I want to do this side hustle, therefore I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to make it happen. And I was be like, hang on, hang on, like don't don't quit your job <laughs> until you've at least done it for a little while. Yep. In in the weekends and e yep. weekends evenings, um, but I guess these days it's it's sort of become a bit unfashionable to talk about doing the stuff on the weekends and evenings and things, and everyone's like, oh, but like sustainability and like you know work life balance and. Yep mental health and all that kind of stuff rightly so um but i think there is still that balance between like the people who sort of succeed are the ones who do add in that extra level of hustle extra level of grind if you want to use that those words yeah i i i think that you've all got to you know to, to make something work there's gonna to have to be a period of time when you have to go outside of your comfort zone you're gonna to have to work harder than you you probably healthily should over a long period of time yeah. but you're not doing that forever mm. so um that was one year but i worked crazy crazy amount of hours i'm doing a full-time job with a three-hour drive backwards and forwards to home or an hour and a half each way yeah. and then working in the evening so there was crazy hours for a year big deal I, you know it felt like there was a, such an end goal at the end of it it was worth it yeah and then when i started working at high when i jacked the job i wasn't doing all the evenings and weekends so there's <laughs> only one year that was pretty easy in fact i ended up starting working at two to finish at two or three o'clock once the money started rolling in mm. i was even finishing earlier to make up for that previous year then I suppose when I started, sure, that that 
that that was tough when that kicked off there was two to three years of that when it that was crazy crazy hours but now i'm 50 years old i've given you an example of basically four years in total out of 50 well i've worked crazy hours mm. that feels doable in my eyes feels doable um so when you were when you were making this money or attempting to make this money from the affiliate stuff yeah. well while you still had the job and you were commuting three hours yeah what was it that kept you going in those those weekends and evenings while you're knackered from a day of work and driving back and back and forth and you get on the computer you're like ah. What, what's what's going through your mind? Well, I suppose it's that dream of not being able to do that three hours. When I'm sitting in that car, because yep. this was the day before, um, in the days before podcast, yep. basically just listening to radio, radio with adverts in, driving backwards and forwards into London. It's pretty, you know, soul destroying. And you think there's this dream of, I met these guys. I remember going to this event. These mm. guys were there, no brighter than me. I think one of them had an Aston Martin, one of them might have had a Ferrari working from home. And you think there's, that's a dream. So you just think, if I just knuckled down for that one year, it keeps you going to do that. And I thought, and also, you know, there's progress in that year as well. Mm. So during that year, you will see times when nothing's happened. And then you might have a little win, little win, little win. So you get like little wins all the way through. And yeah, clearly, if I don't know money through that whole time, it literally just knuckled down for a whole year, nothing had happened, that probably would have been tougher than I thought. Yeah. But because there was wins and money's coming in at different times, it, it brings it back to the, yeah, if I keep going, I keep going, I keep going, I'll get there eventually. Yeah. Yeah, I think in my life, uh, it, it, it would have been around the same time, like 2008 to 2010-ish. Um, I had like two distinct moments. Uh, one was when I first started doing freelance web design and made like a few dollars through a, a PayPal account where I lied about my age because I was like 14. <laughs> uh, I made like $10 through like editing some like MySQL code from some of the website. I was like, bloody hell, I can make money on the internet. And the second one was actually through affiliates. Right. Um, I, I, I made this like site that would get people to sign up for Love Film Affiliates, yep. which was like the pre-blockbuster, pre-Netflix era. And a friend of mine used his own family's credit cards to sign up for four free trials. And I remember getting a check in the mail for 50 quid, which was one of those like um, electronic checks where it's like, Tens of millions, zero, millions, zero, tens of thousands, zero is like tens, five. I was like, bloody hell, I made 50 quid. <laughs> yeah. and I, I, you know, didn't have to work for it directly. Yeah. And it was just having those two experiences of A, making money through selling my web design services and then making money through building this affiliate site that just gave me such confidence that this is a thing. You can make money on the internet. I can, I can make money through a business. And I think it was that sort of formative experiences that meant when I was at uni and started my first business that actually worked. I had the conviction and the knowledge and the experience and having failed at a bunch of things before to be able to make that work. Yeah. And I guess it kind of sounds similar, it's a similar experience to what you had. Yeah. I think that I'm, I think I've said it before. I don't think I'm particularly, I don't think I'm particularly brilliant at anything. I'm, I'm very good at marketing now because I've done it for such a long period of time. But I think naturally at school, I wasn't mm. particularly brilliant at anything. The beauty of like, say, working on uh, e-commerce or creating content or doing whatever is if you put enough hours in you can sometimes beat somebody with more talent than you whereas like I don't know football you go on a football pitch doesn't matter how much effort you put in if you're not really good you're not going to win right well something like this you c it can be just through pure grind you can out you can beat other people and uh, at the time, most of the stuff that I was earning money through required on SEO. The beauty of SEO is you can see rankings, you can check rankings. Mm. And, you know, if I just do that little bit extra there, I'll get a little bit of a bump up there. I'll bump, bump, bump. You can see yourself eventually move. There'll be times when you get you go down as well. So there can be disappointments. But there's sometimes when you get those, you just think more hours. I can beat somebody who's 
They're not yeah. going to grind as much as I can. I can do more. I'll work more. And eventually you can beat that. We are going to take a little quick break from the podcast to introduce the sponsor of this podcast, which is Curiosity Stream. If you haven't heard by now, Curiosity Streams is the world's leading documentary streaming subscription platform founded by John Hendricks, who's the founder of the Discovery Channel. And on Curiosity Stream, they've got hundreds of really high quality, high budget documentaries covering all sorts of things from science and technology to history and ancient civilizations to food and medicine and meditation and like all of the stuff in between. Now, the really cool thing about Curiosity Stream is that they support independent creators. And so there is this service called Nebula, which you might have heard of. It's an independent streaming platform that's run by me and a bunch of other creators. And on Nebula, we can put content like videos and behind the scenes and long form, longer form stuff without worrying about things like the YouTube algorithm. And so for example, on Nebula, I have a bunch of exclusive content that you won't find anywhere else. We actually have the original season zero of the Deep Dive podcast, which started off as like remote Zoom live streams during the pandemic. And that is only available on Nebula. You won't find it anywhere else. So if you enjoy the sorts of conversations we have on Deep Dive, you might like to see, you know, a whole year before we started this podcast properly, once the pandemic stopped, what sort of conversations I was having with people on Zoom. I've also got a series of videos on Nebula called Workflow, which is where I deep dive into some of my favorite productivity tools. And on Nebula, you also get early ad-free access to my videos and videos from a bunch of other creators that you might be familiar with, like Thomas Frank and Tom Scott and Legal Eagle and Lindsay Ellis. And the really cool thing is that because CuriosityStream loves supporting independent creators, we've got a little bundle deal, which is that if you sign up for an account on CuriosityStream, you actually get free access to Nebula bundled with that. So if you head over to curiositystream.com forward slash deep dive, then for less than $15 a year, you can get full access to Curiosity Stream's incredible library of documentaries and also free access to all of the stuff on Nebula bundled with that. So head over to curiositystream.com forward slash deep dive to get the bundle deal. So thank you, Curiosity Stream, for sponsoring this episode. Are you still going on going with the therapy thing or was it like a few sessions? <laughs> so yeah, so it was an eight week thing and I kind of treated it like an essay or an assignment or a game or something. Throughout the whole therapy session, I would just be taking notes like frantically on all the important points. Yeah. And at the end, I would make myself an action plan. Yeah. And then during the week, I would work on the action plan and make sure that I was actually doing the things that were going to help me in some way, shape, or form. Mm. So let's say in therapy session one, we would identify X or Y problem. I would think about how can I fix X or Y problem, work on it during the week, and then report back. I fixed X. I haven't haven't quite fixed Y. Let's work on that a little bit more. Yeah. It's a very like productivity bro way of dealing with therapy. It is, it is, it <laughs> yeah. is. But, but I can't imagine doing it, it any other be, way. Yeah. And I think, I think half of therapy is uh, talking to someone else, listening to them, um, having them you know, tell you things. The other half is you need to put in some amount of work to try and change the things that you're unhappy with or, um, or you know, whatever it is that you need to do. Um, so yeah, I think you need a little bit of both for sure. Okay. So we were talking about like your pre and post therapy self. And you said one of the things definitely is that you've taken, taken the foot off the gas a little bit, shall yeah. we say. Um, that reminded me of a story that Derek Sivers writes about in his book. I think it's in Anything You Want, where he talks about how he would always go for a cycle every day and it would take him 40 minutes to go and he'd be sweating at the end of it. And he'd be like, cool, I need to, need to make my time. It's 40 minutes. Okay. And then one day he decided, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy the cycle ride. It's like, oh, cool, like, oh, smelling the roses on the way and picking up a little pebble and like, you know, just like actually enjoying the cycle ride. And he gets back, he looks at the, the clock and it's 42 minutes. And he's like, damn, was I really huffing and puffing and wearing myself out for the sake of two extra minutes? That seems a bit weird. <laughs> That's a really excellent analogy of how I feel pre and post therapy. I'm still achieving the same things. I'm just taking it a little bit more relaxed and mm. enjoying myself a little bit more. And really the amount of output that I'm losing is minimal. And that's the realization that I've had, which I didn't have before. I was under the assumption that 
you know, I just have to continue working up until the point that I go to sleep because every night when I go to sleep, I look at my to-do list and there's 10 items on there. And I'm like, well, I could probably bang out two of these right now before I go to bed or I can leave them all tomorrow. The obvious choice is to bang two of these before I go to bed. Let's get that done. Yeah. Nowadays, so post-therapy, right? Or during therapy, for the first time in my life, I sat down in bed and I watched a movie on Netflix by myself. Up until that point. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Which which sounds crazy, right? I mean, you know, my girlfriend's been telling me to do this forever. My friends have been telling me to do this forever. And I would always think to myself, like, why would I do that when I could work so on my to-do list? Like, <laughs> it's not about being unproductive. It's just I wanted to do the other things. Yeah. Like, I have this to-do list of things that I genuinely enjoy. Let me get some of them done. Yeah. And so now I just watch a movie before I go to bed. And I do those two tasks in the morning instead of the night before. And I just relax at the end of the day and unwind. Like, why do I need to be on this constant hamster wheel of running, 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 doing all this time management stuff? I can just take a bit of a step back. And like you said, it'll take me 42 minutes instead of 40. Um, and it's not the end of the world. And that's mm -hmm. kind of the, the change that I'm going through now. Have you come across uh, 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman? You would enjoy it. It's, uh, we've got it here somewhere. Uh, it's great. It's like a sort of 2022 slash 2021 uh, productivity book in inverted commas okay. but it's it's not really about productivity it's 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 more it's more like a philosophical approach to time management mm. recognizing that 4000 weeks is roughly the amount of time we have on this earth mm -hmm. and uh once we accept the finitude of existence and our own mortality we stop uh trying to cram all these things and juggle all these balls and we recognize that there genuinely isn't enough time for all the important things and therefore some things are just going to have to be put in the bin for now mm -hmm. and uh, it's a very liberating and interesting read uh, would recommend and for anyone listening we have an interview with Oliver Berkman which will also be linked in the in the show notes down below shameless plug very nice <laughs> um, but yeah so I've I found myself having similar realizations where I used to feel bad about like not replying to people and now I don't feel bad about not replying to people mm -hmm. on like WhatsApp or emails and stuff and emails like will friends be, or people on the internet uh, watch your stuff both to an extent like friends I still feel a little bit bad because like it's a friendship to maintain and I try not to apply productivity bro lens to friendships um but even friends to an extent to be honest like i used to feel guilty that oh i have these 80 unread whatsapps and it's all people friends of mine how like, <laughs> even like fr yeah friends who like i should be replying to and i know i want to reply to them but like oh i just can't bring myself to make the time to to do this thing and now i guess what i've accepted is just like yeah i'm just th that's okay like maybe I will lose out on one or two friendships because I was not sufficiently good at replying to WhatsApp messages. But actually, that's okay. That's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. And the amount of extra stress it adds to my life to feel the need to maintain a, a I don't know, two-hour response time to WhatsApps yeah. does not justify... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's just not worth it. Similarly with emails, similarly with... I, what I found as well is random items on my to-do list. Mm. Whereas I used to think of my to-do list as I have to get all these things done. Now I think of it as... As long as I just get the most important things done each day, it really does not matter if all the other stuff does not get done yeah. forever, like yeah, indefinitely. Yeah. It doesn't matter in the slightest. It's actually all good. And unless like a tax bill comes along, which is too easy to put off or, so, or something <laughs> like that, there, there are very few things that are genuinely necessary and important on the to-do list. And there's certainly not going to be like 10 to 100 of them like I used to have. If I can just do my most important tasks each day and maybe, be, and maybe one or two other things, and I do that every day for a whole year, then I'll make so much more progress than if I think of my to-do list as a series of items that need checking off. Definitely. I, I think there's also a um, like thinking switch that you make where 
you know, my to-do list used to be something that anytime I'd strick one thing off, I would immediately think, oh, okay, what do I want to do next? Well, I want to start making merch. I want to start a Patreon. I want to upload a new video. I want to write a script for this, blah, blah, blah. So there was always things to add. There was a never ending incoming stream of things that I could potentially put on my to-do list. And it's like you said, what you need to realize is like, let me just focus on the most important things that I want to do right now. Once those are done, I can think about adding on a new project. It doesn't all have to get done before I go to sleep at midnight or whatever. Um, so, so yeah, this, this, uh, thinking shift in time management from having to get everything done as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible, um, to just taking a little bit less time, but enjoying it exponentially more is something that's, that I've been going through and that I think is really important. I wish I'd known it earlier. Yeah. I wish I'd experienced it earlier. Um, and yeah, it's kind of a change that I'm trying to make now. Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of something that I heard an emergency medicine consultant say once on one of my shifts, which is that, don't worry about the list. The list is never ending. The patients are going to keep coming in and there's nothing you can do about that. So just embrace the fact that there's nothing you can do about the list Mm -hmm. and just focus on the patient in front of you and try and make that patient have a great time and then focus on the next one in terms of priority order, in terms of triage, and then the next one, and then the next one. And stop worrying about the list. It's all good. If we breach four hours, <coughs> who cares? And like, you know. <laughs> we'll be all right. We, we'll be all right. We got this. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's that exact point that there's yeah. a never-ending list of patients. And each one of them is going to come with their sub, sub list of tasks that need to get done. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. Just one at a time in triage priority order. One at a time. And one day at a time. Trust, trust in the process. Yeah. On, so, on the goal, on the goal setting front, um, I, I also keep on trying to find the perfect system for this. Like... Um, in, in, in terms of like, like, like personal goals. One of my theories, one of my philosophies, shall we say, is that setting, like, I don't like it when I set goals that are outside of my control. For example, when I set the goal of, I want a YouTube video that hits a certain view count right. compared to, I want to make a video I'm proud of. When I think I want to write a book that hits the Sunday Times bestseller list versus I want to write a book I'm proud of. And that's all fine. But that almost feels like it's, oh, well, I'll just do my best and not worry about the outcome, which also which feels a little bit unsatisfying, given a bunch of research around the idea of like effective goal setting and challenging goal setting and the fact that kind of high performers, in inverted commas, in most fields, you know, it's not like Michael Phelps is just, you know, what I'll just try my best and see what happens. It's like, you know, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Any any thoughts around that tension between? I'll try my best versus I have this specific outcome I'm aiming for, which maybe is somewhat outside of my control. It's interesting. I mean, I there's a sort of sub-distinction there between there's the goal, there's the things you can control and things you can't control, but then there's specificity or vagueness in the things that you can control. And I I do think that like things like doing your best and being proud of things like they're really important values in life, but I can see how they're not, they're not particularly helpful in this setting because it's sort of completely open-ended. Mm. And so... It's not very smart. <laughs> I, no, right, exactly. Either you can... Either you will end up sort of not doing what you could have done because you say, well, that was my best, so I don't care. Like, and you sort, of, you sort of make it easy for yourself. Or you do what I think I would do and have done in a lot of my early adulthood which is like be convinced that trying your best is really important and then like torment yourself constantly with like am i doing my best am i do- is this my best am i can i do it? you know and those kind of open-ended things seem unhelpful you on the other hand if you say i mean this is where i feel like quantity-based goals can be really helpful right if you say like i'm going to put out this number of videos or this number of i'm going to write this many words uh on a on a by a certain point firstly it's specific Secondly, it's within your control. And then thirdly, it's kind of 
it's somewhat drained of the sort of the qualitative goals are sort of uh, they 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 go wrong because they're so sort of emotive there's something kind of nice about a very very sort of mechanistic yes. goal in that area i don't think it's the whole piece of the puzzle because i do think even though i wrote in my first book about like how positive visualization is largely nonsense and all sorts of things i do think there's clearly a role for kind of envisioning the having a vision of where you'd like things to be and, and using it to to determine what you do in the in the present but that idea of just being maybe this is like systems versus goals that it's this, that old distinction but it's like it's like the idea of saying like this many words um or you know just something really sort of that sort of takes out all the yeah. all the all the all the angst from it i think it'd nice. be really useful yeah well, well one of the ways i'm thinking about it because i'm i'm i was writing the chapter about this in the book like this week last week um I intended to do this week as well, but then time got in the way. Like, like <laughs> um, is yeah, like systems with. Ah, I don't. Know, I feel like I feel like all all of this stuff converges on a few central central themes, and and we as productivity writers try to put our own stamp on like a thing which people have been doing for centuries, not millennia. Uh, but that aside, um, what I'm what I really like is is that if I kind of break down my implicit process of goal setting because it's never been like explicit. If I, if I break down what that looked like, what it looked like was step number one, setting a kind of destination goal that is within my control, like write a book I'm proud of, which mm. is like this big product, big project. Um, maybe in my mind, it's like, it would be really cool if it hits a bestseller list. It would be really cool if I get invited on conferences and if I, I don't know, get on a podcast because mm. that, 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 that would be sick. But like, those are outside of my control. So let me just not think about those <laughs> yeah. and just recognize that actually it, it's, a, you know, a preferred indifferent as, as the stoics as the stoics might might say <laughs> yeah, right um so the the destination goal is within my control and then i'll break that down into the kind of quote journey goals mm -hmm. which are is more the system stuff yeah. of therefore what i like tangibly need to do is that every week or every day i want to aim to write x thousand words or x yeah. hundred words and again that is within my control and then kind of my step three of this three-step process is for, for that journey goal that like let's say i want to write 500 words a day to lower the bar of quality as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> like, I want, like, I, I literally write on my to-do list, write 500 crappy words for crappy first draft of chapter two. And I find that putting the words crappy in there twice <laughs> really <laughs> makes it easier to be, yeah. okay, you know what? This is actually, this is actually doable. Doable, like, yeah, let, no, let, let's that's do this. great. Um, and it makes me think of two other things, like um, Dan Harris, the meditation yeah. uh, writer and the podcaster, um, talks about doing things, specifically meditation, uh, aiming to do them daily-ish. And having nice. like, having this built in <laughs> built in fuzziness, like because you know whether you did something dailyish, like mm. in a given week, you you have a feel. Like if you did it twice, it wasn't dailyish, but it but it reduces this kind of like oh, if I break my streak, it's all over, and I might as well spend the next three weeks not, not doing anything. <laughs> um, so I think that's a that's an nice. important part of that. And then something I've found really helpful. I don't know if this is writing specific, but like it might be just specific to writing, but. It's also like not keeping going, even if you're on a roll. So if you say like, I'm gonna write 500 words and you write them and then things are going well, you're like, I get another 500 out. It's like actually making yourself stop and walk away. Like that kind of enforced low balling of your, of your aims for the day. And like, that's really, I think for people like, I suspect you and certainly for me, like that's really hard to do. Yeah. Like when the, when the opportunity for a bit more productivity arises and you, 
don't take it. Yes. <laughs> but there's this amazing old book that I had to like buy as print on demand because it's because it's so hard to get called um, How Writers Journey to Comfort and Fluency by a psychologist called Robert Boyce. And it's like a really in-depth study of academic writers and what caused them to be either productive or non not productive. Um, I mentioned him in the book a couple mm. of times. And like one of his big findings was that the writers who made writing into a, a, a moderately important part of their lives were, did lots more than the ones who made it into a very important part of their lives because then it becomes this kind of intimidating thing and you have sort of all sorts of angst about it and you forget about it for weeks at a, yeah. a time because you don't dare go back into that scary thing. And part of that is like you figure out what is your short daily session of writing. And he said like, you know, for, people, for sort of amateur writers, it might be 10 minutes a day. Even for professional writers, it probably should never be more than like three or four hours. And when it's up, you just, you have to stop and like yeah. go and do something else because otherwise you're kind of giving in to a, an impatient urge to be done with the whole thing that will ultimately backfire on you and cause you to sort of dread uh, yeah. returning to the project. That ability to keep important things relatively small in your life i think it's like it's mm. really i'm not saying i'm any good at it yeah but it's it's really interesting Alrighty, that brings us to the end of season two of the podcast huge thank you to anyone who has listened downloaded subscribed any of that kind of stuff and as a reminder we do have the survey and also the link to join the friend zone our completely free community and we'd love for you to fill in the survey so that we can help make this podcast better anyway thank you very much for watching or listening have a great day and i will see you in the next episode Bye bye